Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, God Has Brought Me Laughter. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June the 18th, 2017. I've had exactly one dream that I can remember in which I laughed out loud. I don't remember the dream. I just remember how pleasant it felt to laugh in my sleep. As for jokes, our family likes to say that we laugh three times. When we hear the joke, when it's explained to us, and then when we finally understand it. Then there's nervous laughter that isn't at all funny. I remember a strategic meeting of our church leaders when a friend asked a very awkward but important question. The result was predictable. Nervous laughter. The story from Genesis 18 for this week revolves around human laughter, and in particular the dismissive laughter of incredulity, and then some clever wordplay about that laughter. The matriarch Sarah laughed at God's improbable promise to her, and then she lied in an effort to deny her doubts. It's a deeply human story. Standing at the entrance to their tent, Sarah eavesdropped on Abraham as he conversed with three travelers who were visiting them, and who prophesied that, quote, about this time next year, Sarah, your wife, will bear a son. In fact, this was the second time that Abraham had received this promise. When he heard it the first time, we read, he fell face down, laughed, and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? Sarah responded in the same way as Abraham when she overheard the stupendous suggestion. We read, so Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? The ecstasy of erotic pleasure? The joy of a newborn baby? Sarah laughed in disbelief. But God rebuked her for her doubt, at which point she then lied and denied. We read, Sarah was afraid. So she lied and said, I did not laugh. But God said, yes, you did laugh. Sarah doubted and denied. She laughed and she lied because of the absurd disproportion between the divine promise and the human possibility. Her response was entirely human and not really surprising. From a human perspective, her disbelief was warranted, even appropriate. People don't procreate in old age. But her unbelief also elicited a rhetorical rebuke in the punchline of the narrative. We read in Genesis 18:14, "Is anything too difficult for the Lord?" When I was in seminary 40 years ago, my classmate Phil coined a term for that sort of religious faith that has a firm and unwavering belief 
in a tame and innocuous divinity. Faith that doesn't have any expectation that God will meddle in human affairs, intercede in your life, providentially guide human history, care for a loved one, heal the hurts we suffer, or, God forbid, do the impossible. My friend characterized this sort of tepid faith as functional deism. Functional deism never denies the existence of God, but it also never expects God's decisive action in your personal affairs. And so we read in Genesis that God rebuked Sarah for her timid faith in a tiny God. But God didn't shame Sarah in a punitive manner. Quite the contrary. We read that, quote, The Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. In a delightful double entendre, Sarah and Abraham named their son Isaac, which in Hebrew means he laughs. Their son of laughter would always remind them of their disbelief, but also testify how God fulfilled his promise and acted in their personal history despite improbable and unbelievable circumstances. Whereas at first, Sarah had brought her dismissive laughter to God's promise. In the end, the tables were turned. God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? And yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The story of Sarah's dismissive laughter and cover-up lies conveys not only an appropriate rebuke and a reminder of God's mighty power to act in the most hopeless of circumstances. The narrative also communicates a sense of consolation. We normally think of Abraham and Sarah as paragons of faith and virtue. And with good reason, given how the New Testament remembers them in Romans 4, Hebrews 11, and 1 Peter 3. But the original Genesis story demonstrates how God's drama of salvation is not a story of stellar saints so far removed from our own experiences that we could never hope to emulate them, but of down-and-dirty sinners, messy characters portrayed with glaring faults and failures. Acting out his own fears, Abraham lied about his wife Sarah in Genesis 12. Both he and Sarah scoffed at God's promise of progeny. Commenting on the untidy and unsavory nature of the biblical characters, Eugene Peterson puts it in this way in his book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. It's an extended quote. One of the remarkable characteristics of the biblical way of training us to understand history and our place in it is the absolute refusal to whitewash a single detail. The history in which our scriptures show that God is involved in every bit as messy as the history reported by our mass media, in which God is rarely mentioned, apart from blasphemies. Sex and violence, rape and massacre, brutality and deceit, do not seem to be congenial materials for use in developing a story of salvation, 
But there they are, spread out on the pages of our scriptures. It might not offend some of us so much if these flawed and reprobate people were held up as negative examples, with lurid hellfire descriptions of the punishing consequences of living such bad lives. But the biblical story is not told quite that way. There are punishing consequences, of course, but the fact is that all these people, good and bad, faithful and flawed, are worked into the plot of salvation. God, it turns out, does not require good people in order to do good work. As one medieval saying has it, God draws straight lines with a crooked stick. He can and does work with us, whatever the moral and spiritual condition in which he finds us. God, we realize, does some of his best work using the most unlikely people. Eugene Peterson I take comfort in knowing that my own doubts and denials, the lies I tell myself to rationalize my disbelief, and the times that I scoff at the likelihood of divine intervention in my own puny affairs, are not only standard fare for human nature, but also the unwieldy material of God's salvation history. They might deserve a divine rebuke, but they don't constitute an ultimate obstacle to, to divine action in my own little story. For books this week, I review a novel by Paulette Giles. It's called News of the World. New York, William Morrow, 2016. This novel is 209 pages long. We call it the Wild West, and for good reason. Paulette Giles' historical novel is set in 1870, in the devastating aftermath of the so-called War Between the States. Texas is a place of anarchy and under military rule. The protagonist of her story, Captain Jefferson Kyle Kidd, is an old widower when we meet him. He had experienced three wars, the War of 1812 when he was 16 years old, then the War with Mexico, and then where this, setting, where this novel is set, the Civil War that had just ended. Captain Kidd is a wizened and tender man, given to philosophic reflection at the age of 72. In our own day, when news ricochets around the world in just a few seconds, he has a most interesting vocation. He's a newsreader. Captain Kidd drifts from town to town in North Texas, where at night he changes into his so-called reading clothes and gives public readings from newspapers for a dime per person. He loved information, writes Giles, and so did his audiences. But this is a failed vocation for Kidd. We read, if people had true knowledge of the world, Perhaps they would not take up arms, and so perhaps he could be an aggregator of information from distant places, and the world would be a more peaceful place. He had been perfectly serious. That illusion had lasted from age 49 to age 65. 
At each stop along the way, Captain Kidd would give them a few paragraphs of hard news and then, the, and then read of dreamlike places far removed. This was the arrangement of all his readings, and it worked. In Wichita Falls, he discovers a higher calling, which is the real story of this novel. For a $50 gold piece, he agrees to return a 10-year-old orphan white girl to her relatives, a 400-mile journey south to San Antonio. Four years earlier, she had been kidnapped by the Kiowa Indians. And so we have a journey story about an odd couple, an old man and a young girl. There are raiding parties, cultural classes, clashes with the little girl Johanna, broken wagon wheels, abandoned farms, harsh land and weather, immigrants from all over Europe, and definitely some bad people. We read, human aggression and depravity still manage to astonish him. And so at night, Captain Kidd says his prayers for, quote, so many people, so much harm. The arrival in San Antonio isn't what he expects, and it forces him to make difficult choices late in his life. A novel by Paulette Giles, News of the World. For movies, I review the very popular sci-fi film, Arrival. It's the stuff of childhood fantasy. And hey, about the time that this film was released, a lost essay by none other than Winston Churchill argued that it was probable that extraterrestrial life existed somewhere in the universe. When 12 alien aircraft touch down all around the world, jets scramble, cars crash, flights are canceled, stock markets plummet, and the National Guard enforces a curfew. Why are these aliens here? Where did they come from? What do they want? Can they understand us? How did they get here? Are they more or less advanced than us? Good or evil? Linguistics professor Louise Banks joins the physicist Ian Donnelly at a military base in Montana to decipher their strange logograms. The vocations of Louise and Ian are a tip-off about the major themes of this film, the nature of time and language as the fundamentals that shape how we process reality. They call the seven-limb creatures hepatods, and Ian nicknames the two leaders that they encounter Abbott and Costello. In fact, it turns out that the golden rule might be helpful. And if you could see your whole life from start to finish, would you change anything? This science fiction thriller by director Denis Villanova was nominated for eight Academy Awards and made numerous Picture of the Year lists. From 2016, the movie Arrival. 
And in, in this season of Pentecost, we posted another poem by Hildegard of Bingen. Hildegard of Bingen lived from 1098 to 1179, a remarkable lifespan for a long time ago. The title of this poem, O Comforting Fire of Spirit. O comforting fire of spirit, life, within the very life of all creation, holy you are in giving life to all. Holy you are in anointing those who are not whole. Holy you are in cleansing a festering wound. O sacred breath, O fire of love, O sweetest taste in my breast, which fills my heart with a fine aroma of virtues. O most pure fountain, through whom it is known that God has united strangers and inquired after the lost. O breastplate of life and hope of uniting all members as one. O sword belt of honor, enfold those who offer blessing. Care for those who are imprisoned by the enemy and dissolve the bonds of those whom divinity wishes to save. O mightiest path which penetrates all, from the height to every earthly abyss, you compose all, you unite all. Through you clouds stream, ether flies, stones gain moisture, waters become streams, and the earth exudes life. You always draw out knowledge, bringing joy through wisdom's inspiration. Therefore, praise be to you who are the sound of praise and the greatest prize of life, who are hope and richest honor, bequeathing the reward of light. Hildegard of Bingen. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June the 18th, 2017. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.